Well, we're um, getting down to the last couple of passages that we're going to look at in 1 John. And so if you'll find 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, I want to share with you concerning real uncontainable faith. Now, thank you for standing as we look at the Word of God together. I'm just, I'm going to ask us just to read verse 13, and then you'll see how the context builds up to this one verse that every one of us should hide in our hearts, that we should understand that this verse is actually in the Bible. The Bible does teach that you can know that you know that you know that you're for real in your your relationship with Christ. And so in verse 13, he says, I have written these things. What things? This letter that he's written. This, this, This beautiful reminder of what genuine faith is all about. He says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know that. And when you know that, you will experience what we call real, uncontainable faith. And Father, we thank you for this promise. Help every man, woman, boy, and girl under the sound of my voice this morning to know beyond any shadow of a doubt that they're a child of the living God. Help them to examine the evidence and to see that there's an uncontainable faith that if it's real, they can't hold it in, they can't hold it back. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, I'm not sure how many people are in churches across America today, and some are watching um, worship services on television, but I understand that there are also millions of people today that are watching uh, for a 15-year-old girl to have a baby today. This 15-year-old happens to be a giraffe, but this, uh, this 15-year-old lady, now you must say 15, wow, well, I understand in giraffe years that could be pretty old, that in the wild a giraffe might only live to be about 15 or 16 years old, and uh, yet in captivity a lot of times they live to be 20, 25 years old, so, so maybe this giraffe whose name is April is having a midlife crisis or something, I don't know what is going on, but because this thing is being videoed and you can live stream it, even though I think YouTube kicked them off for a while and now they're back on, somebody actually reported to YouTube that it was an indecent thing because um, the giraffe was nude. And so <laughs> I just assumed all giraffes were nude when they were having children. But anyway, somebody had reported it. But anyway, it's back up now. The, the truth is the people who had reported it didn't like the idea that the animal was being born in captivity and that sort of thing. But um, people will watch and people will wait because a, a baby animal is going to come into the world. And, and people will get impatient and people have been uh, tweeting and people have been texting and, and people have been commenting on the Facebook live stream that uh, enough already, have the baby. <laughs> we get impatient, right? Sometimes the same thing can be true. You know, if, as we sing at Christmas time, that we, we, we pray that the Savior would be born in us. We, we pray that just as Christ came into the world, that Christ would come to live inside of us. And the truth of the matter is, if Christ has come to live inside of me and Christ has come to live inside of you, the whole world is watching and waiting to see if this, this thing called Christianity is really for real. And if Christ is in you, as sure as there is a baby giraffe that's got to come out sometime, it's got to come into this world, 
If it's really in there, now I'm assuming it is, but if it's really in there, it's going to come out. And if Jesus Christ really lives inside of you, he is going to work his way out. It will be evident in your life. You will not be able to hide it. Now, some ladies sometimes when they experience a pregnancy, maybe they try to do some things not to show for a while. I think we've got uh, four expectant mothers in our church family right now. And you can hide it for a little while, right? But after a while, you just can't hide it. And then that baby comes into the world. When Christ is alive inside of us, as you mature in your faith, he is going to shine forth. It is going to come out. Uh, We might have to be patient, and others might be saying, we're waiting on it. When are we going to start seeing Jesus in your life? But if he's real and he's living inside of you and your faith is real, it is going to happen. It's going to be uncontainable Christ is going to be at work in you and work himself in a way that he shines through you and the world will be able to see, yep, he was filled with Jesus. Jesus was living. Now, now the assumption is something's got to be on the inside before it comes out. And for many, it's not real on the inside and that's why it doesn't work its way out. It's, it's not a real uncontainable faith because it's not a real faith to start with. And so in verse 13 we read that there is a way that you can know for sure that you are born again, that you are a Christian, that you are a child of God. And I believe this is going to become more, uh, it's going to become easier to identify for a while in our world, and then I think it will get more difficult again. And let me explain what I mean by that. I mean, nominal Christianity is going to fade away. Casual Christianity, where somebody will say that I am a follower of Jesus Christ, it's not going to be a popular thing to say. So people are going to get to where they, man, they don't say that just because they get some kind of uh, brownie points with the people they work with or it gives them some kind of credentials on a job application. If you haven't noticed, this world is not applauding people because they say that they are followers of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of other things that you can say to kind of help you advance in this world. But saying that you are a Bible-believing Christian does not earn you favor in the world's eyes anymore. So nominal Christianity, people who just claim to be a Christian because it's the right thing to do, the guy that kind of said, my grandparents were Christian, my parents were Christian, so that's what I am, I'm going to be a Christian. And sometimes I even apply it to denomination. You know, my my parents were were Baptists or, or Methodists or Pentecostal or my grandparents were, so that's what I am. Well, that's being done away with. Those kind of loyalties don't exist. Something's got to be real for people to hang around these days, and something has to be real happening on the inside of them. Now, I think that there will be a reemergence of it because people want an outward form of godliness. Uh, people um, want to be able to refer to something that validates who they are. So there will be, I, I believe, the reemergence, and this already happening in some circles today, of kind of a watered-down, shallow version of the Christian faith, the, an outward form of godliness that denies the power thereof, as Paul told Timothy. I think we're going to see that kind of reemerge because people don't want to be called godless or ungodly, so they're going to embrace an outward form of godliness that denies something real on the inside, the, the power of God at work on the inside. Now, if it is real, if your faith is authentic, and we've been asking this question all throughout this study, are you for real? And if it is for real, it is going to be uncontainable. You will not be able to hide it long. It's not something that you tuck away in a drawer. It's not something that you keep on a shelf. I don't know 
what decision my son is going to make this afternoon, but at some point after church, he's going to come back to his dorm room, and he's going to open up a closet. Tina, you'd be so proud. His closet is neat. His clothes are hung up neatly, and his hats are all in order. It just kind of blew me away. But he's going to look up, and he's going to see a Dale Jr. hat and a Chase Elliott hat. And he's going to have to make, he's going to have to make a decision, right? He's going to have to identify with somebody at some point this afternoon. We can't put Jesus on a shelf in a closet and say, you know, I'll decide when I wake up in the morning, do, do I want to be a follower of Christ today? I'm going to put on my Jesus hat today. Or I'm going to, maybe I kind of want to be the, on, live on the bad side today because after all, there's a, uh, there's a young lady at school. She kind of likes bad boys anyway. So I'm going to put on my devil hat today. You can't make that decision on a daily basis. If Christ is living inside of you, you have to come to a place, a crisis, a point in your life where you say, once and for all, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, and He is at work in me, He's going to work through me, and it's going to work its way out. And so it's not something that is hidden or tucked away. Now, I'm only going to share two points with you, two what I would call uncontainable testimonies. That will, th- th- this is how this faith thing is going to work its way out in your life. And the first one is this, the, the practical testimony of our triumph in Christ. We've read that word victory again and again in this book, and we see that the, the Christian life is a victorious life. And so when I speak of the practical testimony, that word practical means that it is something that is practice. We, we don't just say, we don't just claim a faith, we practice our faith, or we live it out. And when I use the word practice, I'm not using it for those of you basketball fans or, or remember the interview with Alan Iverson, I'm not using it like, um, you know, practice is different than the real game. I'm not using practice as an athlete, like this don't count and this does count. I'm using the word practice like a doctor would use the word practice. If a doctor is practicing medicine, we don't get all nervous and say, oh, Man, don't be practicing on me. I don't want to be a guinea pig. Man, you do the real thing on me. Right? You know, some of us get real nervous when we hear doctors practicing medicine. But if a doctor's practicing medicine, we're saying, no, he's really active. He is doing what he was called and what he was trained to do. And so by practical here, I mean we practice our faith. The, the triumph that we have in Christ is lived out in our lives. And we just saying trust and obey. We learned that in these first two verses of chapter 5. He says, everyone who believes or trusts, to believe is more than a head knowledge. It means to literally trust with your life. Everyone who trusts Jesus with their life as the Messiah has been born of God. And everyone who loves the parent also loves his child. If you love the Father... You love the Son. If you say you love God, you're going to love the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so this is a trust and a love that leads to an obedience. He says this is how we know that we love God's children when we love God and obey His commands. If the faith is real, it's working itself out because we believe Him, we trust Him, we begin to obey His commands They're not burdensome, as we'll see in just a moment, but that's where faith comes in. It's an obedient lifestyle. Jesus 
would argue in John chapter 14. Well, really, there was no argument to it. He just stated it plainly that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He asked the question. He begs the question. He says, why do you say that you love me and you don't do what I say? Any parents ever felt like that? You're like, man, I know what God is saying that. We felt like that as parents sometimes. It's like, mommy, I love you. Daddy, I love you. We'll go clean your room. I don't want to. Why? Because we have rebellious hearts. But when that heart has been transformed by the grace of God, we, we don't say, God, we love you with our mouth if we're not willing to live it out with our life. Because just saying it with our mouth doesn't mean that it's real. And so even the, the idea of a public confession is really in place so that we're held accountable by the people of God, by the body of Christ. In chapter 4 and verse 15, if you look back at chapter, he says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him, and he in God. So there's an important confession that we make with our mouth. That is a big deal. Romans chapter 10, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in our heart, God raised him from the dead. Remember, believing, trusting him with our life. So, So we verbalize that, but when we do, when we make a public profession, we're giving the body of Christ permission to say, now wait a minute, you claim to be a Christian, and I don't see your life modeling what you claim to be. So why that public profession is so important to say, hey man, this thing is so real, I'm inviting you to hold me accountable to what I say I believe. In 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, as, as Paul's writing Timothy, he says, listen, would you ever imagine that somebody would enlist in the military? Would you ever imagine that a soldier would get so called up in civilian affairs? He said, no, no, that's not the way it works. A soldier doesn't get caught up in civilian affairs. A soldier makes sure that he does what his commanding officer is pleased by. He, he, he makes it a goal to say, as a good soldier, I want to please my commanding officer. And his point to young Timothy was, be a soldier of Jesus Christ. You give your life to him and you seek to not get caught up in the things of this world, but you're asking all the time, would this please my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Now some of you are saying, well, wait a minute, that sounds tough. Salvation is supposed to be by grace. Now you're acting like God's expecting something of me. And if God loves me, if God really loves me, he's going to love me as I am, and he's not really going to expect much of me, right? Let's go back and think about our responsibility as parents. Do we expect anything of our kids? <laughs> we better. Sometimes we don't challenge them enough. Sometimes we set the bar too low and they blow our minds, right? They're hungry for more. But if we have expectations on their life, it's not because we don't love them, it's because we do love them. It's because we love them that we place expectations in their life, and it's because God loves us, and because of the potential He sees in us and what He's doing through us, that He expects more from us. And so we read in verse 3 that His commandments... That's not burdensome. It's not like getting that list of chores. My mom used to put it on a refrigerator door so we'd remember it. You dad was going to be home sometime around 4.30, so about 4 o'clock we got really, really busy real fast. But when you looked at those list of chores, like, oh, man, I don't want to do that. that. That's not what God's commands are all about. He says they're not burdensome. Look at verse 3. For this is what the love of God is, to 
keep his commandments. His commands are not a burden. They, 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 in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He says, My yoke is easy. My burden is light. So he says, This is not a heavy thing. It's understanding, wait a minute, my Lord, my Savior, the one who loves me, the one who died for me, the one who saved me, knows what's best for me because he is the creator of life, and he knows how life is to be lived at its best. And so he's given me some wonderful instructions so that I can live my life according to the manufacturer of life's instructions and get in on the blessings that he has for me. There's great reward, not burden, in obeying his commands. So our faith, think about it, he's, he's, he, to all this together now, our faith, our trust completely in who he is, and my trust in his word is saying that I believe, I trust that God knows what's best for me. So at an early age, when, the, when, when I'm discovering, wait a minute, God's word says I'm supposed to obey my parents, that's burdensome. God knows what's best for me. I get a little bit older and I, I start seeing God's, God's biblical requirements for, for dating and marriage and, and who you can't marry and that sort of thing. I'm like, oh God, why all these rules? Rules on sexuality and things like that? It's not burdensome. God knows what's best for you. God knows what's going to help you to live life at its fullest. Business decisions, finances, God knows what's best for you. And when we violate, and we all have violated God's commandments, at some point or another, we miss out on his blessings. It's not burdensome. It's a blessing. And God says, I know what's best for you. I know how you're going to enjoy life to the fullest in a way that will be for your good and for my glory. And so here are some guidelines. Here are some commands that are going to keep you out of trouble and help you to experience my best. And, And we look at it like it's a burden. He says, no, 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 it's not burdensome. This is what our faith is all about, trusting that he knows what's best. Verse 4, because whatever has been born of God conquers the world. God wants us to live victoriously. And this is the victory that conquers the world. Our faith, trusting in Him, is going to cause us to live victoriously over this world. And who is the one who conquers the world? But the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So I trust Him, and if I trust in Him, as we sang a moment ago, I'm going to obey Him. Because I'm obeying him now, I'm getting in on the benefits of the blessings of walking with him. And when I disobey him, by the way, this is plan A and there's no plan B. And when I'm disobedient to his commands and I'm out of fellowship with him, then I'm suffering from the burdens of being separated and out of fellowship with him. He wants what's best for me. So what are you known for? Practicing. Not, Not saying you believe, but what are you known for when it comes to what you live out on a daily basis? Is it your triumph in Christ? When, when people hear your name called, how do they think of you? I mean, I, I, could, I could name names of people who aren't here. You know, a name like, I could say the name Tim Tebow. That's a pretty well-known name, right? Tim Tebow. What comes to mind when, when you think of Tim Tebow? For, for some of you, you may have thought of Florida Gators. Uh, for others, when I said the name Tim Tebow, you may have thought of, oh yeah, he had that, that stint in the NFL. I remember when he was, uh, he got to be quarterback uh, for Denver for a while, right? That, that may have been what came to mind. And some of you may have thought, oh, he's an ESPN analyst. 
But how many of you would say, before you think of Tebow as a NFL, college, ESPN, I think of Tim Tebow, who's willing to get in trouble for opening his mouth and speaking about his faith. How many of you would say that came to your mind first? Yeah. Most of us now know him more for his stand for Christ than we do for anything else. What are we known for? When people, when people call my, well, Pastor Robbie, he's that preacher down there at the church. Or as, man, he's, he really stands for the Word of God and wants to live it out and he doesn't want to back down. When people hear your name, if they hear Barry Fortune, yeah, he's, he's the guitar player and the well man. Or, man, he, he, he does not compromise the Word of God. Uh, Kerry Metz, he's that coach. Um, has been athlete. No, I'm just kidding. Um, he's that coach over at the high, he, he teaches a, a, a Sunday school class at Trinity. Or, he's, a, he's a man who loves the Word of God. And see, there's so many things that we do, but what, what do we want to be remembered for? What do we want to be our legacy? And I picked on a couple of men that I know stand on the Word of God and won't compromise it. But, but what about you and where you're at in your walk with God? Are, are, are you someone who, the, the practicing, practical testimony of your life, of your triumph in Christ, becomes evident to the people around you? That's what his commands are doing. He, he's, it's Jesus himself coaching us up in these areas to be triumphant, to give him the glory. And, and that, that's going to be seen in our character, and it's going to be seen in our calling. Character meaning who we are and calling what He's called us to do. A life of purpose. Exalting the Savior. Encouraging the body of Christ. Reaching lost people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So many people who claim to be Christians, who, who will still walk to that closet and decide which hat they're going to put on that day, they are not living day to day with their life on purpose, saying, man, the reason I woke up this morning, I guarantee you, Pastor Terry has no doubt why God has him healed and still here in this world. All of us should live with the same confidence that if you're here breathing this morning, God's got you here to glorify him, to encourage the body of Christ, and to help those who aren't part of that body to come to know Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. And do we live our life with that kind of purpose? That's the triumph that we have in Christ. Secondly, I want you to see that there's the powerful testimony of Christ's truth in us. Now, here's, here's where, what it comes down to. What God is doing in you is more important than what you are doing for Him. And let's be abundantly clear on that. I'm not trying to teach you to leave this place and go do so many good things that you try to convince everybody else that you're truly a Christian. What God is doing in you is more important than what you're doing for Him. And if He's doing these things in you, then it's going to be uncontainable. You don't have to work at it so much. Now, Jesus is calling the plays. That's the commands. That's the first five verses we just looked at. And if we love Him, we're going to obey His command. But some of you have probably been in a huddle before. I remember being in a huddle before at Madison County High School on the football field playing the Gainesville Red Elephants, getting beat about 30-something to six. And the, the play came in, and I had confidence in our coach to call the right play. My job 
and I had come in off the bench, was to block a fellow by the name of Damon Evans. Some of you heard him. He played for Georgia a little bit later. All I've got to do is stalk block, right? Easy job. Not quite. And so I didn't doubt the coach's ability to call the play, but I certainly doubted my ability to execute the play. And some of us are like that in our faith. We, we kind of like, okay, I trust Jesus, but does he know who he's putting in the game? Does he know what he's calling on me to do? Now here's the good news of the gospel is that he wants to do something in you before he does something through you, and so that it's by his power and for his glory that it all gets done. And so he says, Jesus Christ, he is the one who came by water and the blood. Not by water only, but by water and the blood. And he's having to explain something here to the Gnostic crowd that you not, might not be looking in on at this time. But he's trying to say, look, man, he was God from the point he was baptized. He was fully God all the way to the cross because the Gnostics were saying, well, you know, God, deity kind of came on Jesus at his baptism and it departed before his death. He's saying, not so. Man, he was, that word became flesh. He was deity from birth, death, resurrection. Jesus was always God the Son, even though God the Father couldn't look on his death. He, he remained God the Son dying for us. In, in verse 7, he says, it says, for there are the, the three that testify, the Spirit, verse 8, the water and the blood, and, and some later manuscripts written into the margins were the words Father, in addition to the, the, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and some later manuscripts were written into the text, uh, the words the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And so in some translations today, those words have been plugged in as part of the text, and, and, and really it makes no theological difference at all whether those words are in your translation or not. It means that Jesus was fully God, God was on him from the point he was baptized. God was, um, he was fully God, dying in our place on the cross. And it's not nothing that we, we did of our own accord to earn victory. It was what Christ did for us. In Revelation chapter 12 and 11, when they got victory, when the saints experienced victory over the spiritual warfare they were in, it says they overcame him, how? By the word of their testimony. By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of the testimony, and they loved not their lives to the death. And so it was what Christ had done for them that now he was doing in them that was giving them victory as he worked through them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a lot of times in this study I've referred to verse 17 where it says that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. All things are becoming new. You get down to the end of that chapter, we see that God was in Christ, that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God was in Christ doing what? What verse 18 says, redeeming the world to himself. Now, come back to this text here in verses 9, 10, and 11. If we accept the testimony of men, God's testimony is greater because it is God's testimony that has given about his that he has given about his son the one who believes in the son of god has the testimony in himself the one who does not believe god has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that god has given about his son the word of the gospel the message of christ and his cross and his resurrection a message that god has sent as through the Holy Spirit this was proclaimed through those 
apostles and throughout the early church, those who were rejecting that message were in essence rejecting the very existence of God. And so if we believe in God, he's saying we're going to believe in his son and we're going to believe the message of the gospel and it's going to change our lives because there's something more important than our works and that is God's word. That's why this is the more powerful testimony. Don't get me wrong. Your practice is vitally important. Your demonstration of how it's worked itself out in your life is something we can't compromise or we would be taken away from Scripture. But there's something more important than your experience. And that's the Word of God. That's God's testimony. Now, my experience could cause me to believe all kinds of things if I didn't start with God's testimony, with God's Word. And there might be all kinds of religion. I, I might could say, you know what? My life really changed when I started meditating with, with, with some, some Buddhist monk in the background playing some kind of instrument. My life really changed when I started following a doctor's advice about some things. Or my life really changed when I got involved in transcendental meditation, or my, my life really changed when I, I embraced the five pillars of Islam. People can bring about all kinds of religious experiences, but that does not mean that those experiences are based on truth. And so the more powerful testimony is God's word concerning his son, God's words concerning his gospel. So I'm not saved today just because I say that I'm saved. I'm saved today because I've trusted in what God's Word says. And His testimony is greater. And His testimony is working its way out into my life. So what He's doing in me becomes more important than what He's doing through me. Because He can't do anything through me until He does something in me. Philippians 2.13 It is God who works in you both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. So are you submitted to that? Are you surrendered to that process? And the life we experience in verse 12, the one who has the Son, he's got this life. The one who doesn't have the Son of God doesn't have life. Ephesians 2 says that you're still dead in your trespasses and sins. Not sick, but dead in your trespasses and sins. Still in need of life. To be made alive with the gospel of Christ. So he's got to do a work inside of me. Remember the discussion Jesus had with the woman at the well in John chapter 4? She's asking for water. Uh, I'm sorry, he's asking her for water. And she's like, you know, why would you be asking me for water? He says, look, if you knew it was who asked you, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water and it would have become a well uh, bubbling up into eternal life. That's what God is doing in us and what God wants to do in you if he hasn't started the process as you surrender to that. As we close, let's come back to verse 13. It says, I've written these things to you who believe. What do we say believe means? It means to trust with your life. Turning from sin and self. Not trusting in anything you could ever do or anything that you might claim as a good work or even an evidence, but trusting completely in Him. Those who believe in the name of the Son of God, Jesus, so that you may know, not that you can hope, I stood elbow to elbow on an assembly line for a summer with two Jehovah's Witnesses who said you can sure hope that you're going to heaven one day. I said, my Bible says I can know 
I can know beyond a shadow of a doubt. Remember, we used to, some of the church family here was in the youth group with me, but we used to go on these retreats to Panama City Beach in the springtime. And there were a lot of uh, our friends that were saved, came to know Christ during that time. I remember one particular time I was standing down there after hearing a message about eternity. And I picked up a handful of sand on the beach, and as the sand just slipped away, I tried, you just can't get all the sand off of a sweaty hand, right? And you just try to get it down to one grain. But I remember trying to look at just one grain of sand and think, what would this grain of sand be like compared to all the beaches on all the world? What significance is one grain of sand compared to all the beaches on all the world? And I just felt there as a college student, that grain of sand is infinitely larger than my life compared to eternity when you compare that grain of sand to all the sand on all the world. You mean my life is, my life is infinitely smaller because eternity has no end. It was interesting, I, I remember helping a fella that was from the, the Grace Church in Stone Mountain, the pastor of that church, Buddy Hoffman. I just read yesterday, he went to be with the Lord, had a terminal illness, found out he had a month to live, and then earlier this month, he went, Buddy went to be with the Lord. And I thought, man, I was telling Tina, I just, I remember being a, a college student and, and doing this Panama City retreat. And we were leading a Bible study together. And uh, but God used him mightily in this life. But he's with the Lord now. He's, he's in eternity. Why do I share that? Because as we've asked this question every Sunday, I, I don't know if I've driven the point home. That's this. Eternity is too long to be wrong. Eternity is too long to be wrong. Eternity is too wrong, long to be wrong about God. The Bible says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The, the, the eternity is too long to be wrong about the gospel. You might come to a place in your life where I, I kind of believe in God, but I don't, I'm not one of these Jesus only. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He's either Lord of all or he was the biggest liar and con man who ever lived. You can't say he was a good man. Eternity's too long to be wrong about the gospel. And finally, too, eternity is too long to be wrong about the genuineness of your faith. The genuine, you say, I, I believe in God and I even believe his gospel, but I, I don't know that I've ever completely turned from sin and self. We call that repentance and trusted in him. Eternity is too long to be wrong. Would you bow your heads with me?